Just because you're paranoid, Huey, doesn't mean we're not out to get you. Uh, do you have a preference in order here? I kind of do, but I'm easy to go with the flow. No, no, no. I, your, your show. Uh, so you tell me and I will do it. I kind of would rather talk about the conversation first. Mm-hmm. That seems, yeah, that seems the way I was going, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine we could go, we could cover everything, but if something's going to get dropped off the wayside... <laughs> It should yeah. be the lesser movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, do you want? To, is this going to be just one episode then, or are you doing it as two separate recordings, or what? What, what are you feeling? It, it'll it'll depend on on how the on the conversation goes. Got you. We'll see where it goes because I, I don't want that to be constrained. Because I know you're you're very ordered. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I am already recording. Uh, you uh, yep. you have not graced this show with your presence since june 2020 you're joking so i i will not ask you what you've been up to since then (laughs) go listen to the eight thousand episodes that duncan mcleish has released on the teapots collective and what what did we do by then that was was that oh jesus christ this is why we ended up in a pandemic so long i jinxed it (laughs) Well, no, because I mean we were already kind of there. It, it, so we went going backwards from the last time you were there. Just episodes released by the show. So Bubble yeah. Boy is not at fault. Before Bubble, Bubble Boy, the... uh, Liam Rafferty and I covered Waterworld. Oh, it's hundred percent Liam's fault then. And um, before that, Witch and I did Twelve Monkeys. Let's blame Witch. That sounds good. <laughs> And then before that, there was Escape from L.A. and Mad Max 2. 
Yeah, escape from LA might have been the cause. I'm just saying it's not the Wuhan district of China. I think it may have been that that caused coronavirus. Because, um, like, I, I have not, I've obviously haven't heard that episode since it dropped. So, I'd like, I can't remember if we were like that. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of months, but we'll all be out soon, you know, <laughs> or or what? I, I don't know. It does. It does feel like like twenty like. June 2020, we were three months, less than three months in the lockdown at that point. So um, over here anyway. Um, so that's just kind of surreal. We're essentially, we're, we're spitting distance now to the kind of second full year of the world not being, well, it's certainly my world not being uh, as it was prior to March 2020. So um yeah, I would love to see like uh, you know it's it's been a learning curve and you know it took me a, a while to acclimate to it. But it turns out if you watch a lot of movies and record a lot of podcasts and aren't the most sociable person on the planet, a lockdown isn't the worst thing. Like the the best thing and I, I mentioned this recently on an episode of uh, Duncan and Bo, and I can say this because my wife doesn't listen to any of the recordings that I do. But um, every Boxing Day in the UK, so that's a 26th of December um, for, for the Americans that don't do Boxing Day um, we uh, we always go to the in-laws so Christmas Day spent in my house like with me just and the wife and the kids um, and no one else and I, I love it it's my it's like it's my day of getting absolutely wasted and, and cooking uh, and turns out the drunker I get the better I am my chef oh, nice. um I don't know if there's a correlation there, uh, but it's been proven the last three years, so we're sticking with it. Uh, so, uh, but on Boxing Day we go to the in-laws, and um, it's maybe my least favourite meal of the year. And it's not because they're not nice people; they are they're very very nice people. And it's not because they're like you married my daughter. It's, not, it's none of that. You know, they, they genuinely love me to bits. It's just I can't be bothered. <laughs> I'm like I just, I just like I have to I have to smile and I have to laugh at every joke. And I have to pretend that what they bought me I really like, and uh, yeah, as, as that to me is ta- is more exhausting doing that than is running a marathon. Uh, so like not this year because this year's Boxing Day everything was back open for a small time window uh, for us to go and celebrate, and it was it was fine. But the year before we did it digitally, and it was the best Boxing Day in like fifteen years. I fucking loved it. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose I suppose it's worth kind of swinging out here that I'm not entirely sure who came up with the idea for this particular episode, but I'm very excited to do it because we're covering like if we're talking thrillers, it's in my top ten thrillers of all time. I uh, like it's absolutely incredible, and a movie I would have paid fucking cold hard cash down on the table and a wager with someone that you'd already covered. I can't believe you're this far into your show and you have not covered the conversation. Well, I made some false steps early on. I think. Well, I don't know about false steps, but <laughs> Bubble I... Boy, uh... <laughs> I. I... I learned there there was possibly some movies that I wanted to save for sp- uh, our particular people, mm. and, and there they are there. You know, um, you were within that group, and oh nice. But I did something you know very early on. I think within my first five episodes, I covered the Parallax View with mm-hmm. a wonderful person, 
but they had very little interest in discussing the things oh. in Parallax View. So, oh, <laughs> so movies started kind of, kind of going like, oh, you don't want to talk about the MK Ultra program and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> we don't want to talk about politics. On okay, all right, okay, yep. we're gonna push. <laughs> Things like Doctor Strangelove and They Live mm-hmm. and The Conversation uh-huh. and The Thing and other yep. things like that. A little, f- kick kick that stone a little bit down the road. Um. <laughs> not necessarily a, a bad thing. I, I am like very early in the tenure of one of the other podcasts that I do, uh, the aforementioned Duncan and Bo Come Correct. I brought this one to Bo. Bo had never seen it. Uh, and this would have been 2015, I think. Um, and he'd somehow skated through life having never seen the conversation. Um, and I was like, we should, I can't remember what movie he picked for me. Cause that was back when we were doing our versus series. So we both picked a movie within the same genre that the other one hadn't seen. And at the end, we would essentially debate each other as to who had the better suggestion and whatever he picked, I crushed, um, like I crushed like a tiny little insect with the conversation. Um, I both seemed surprised by that, and I was like, it's Francis Ford Coppola, right? Like, just when he's about to hit Godfather status, right? And it's Gene fucking Hackman, like, like coming off the French connection. At what point did you ever think I wasn't going to win? <laughs> like, <laughs> it seems like incredibly naive, either that, or you genuinely thought your movie was one of the best movies ever made. Oh, what, you didn't? Well, suck it. Um, Take your love. So, it, it really. It, it really, yeah, it really is. I mean, um, it's a movie that I don't revisit like a huge amount, probably because I don't ever want to sicken myself from it. But it's a movie whose kind of tangled tendrils have essentially influenced cinema moving forward. It was interesting because um, when I posted, I was watching it last night. Um, one of the people on my Facebook page had commented back and said, you know, makes a great double bill with Blowout, which it duly does, the Palmer's Blowout. But the reason it makes a great double bill with Blowout is because both movies, Blowout and The Conversation, are essentially retellings of Blow Up. Um, So from the 60s. So they're, they're kind of quasi-remakes, uh, so to speak. So yes, that's why they pair really well together, because I'm basically based off the same movie. Yeah. So, there we go. So if it didn't, there would be a problem. Yeah, 100%. Although, you know, like, um, I said a lot about, yeah, I mean, like, I, I imagine a lot of people would be like, well, De Palma, I get it, because De Palma just rips off other people. But Coppola? And I'm like, yeah, Coppola can be influenced by surprisingly amazing movies as well. It's weird, that, isn't it? It's almost as if the industry continually remakes things over and over and over again. <laughs> almost. It's, an, it's almost a, time is a flat circle, man. <laughs> are you drinking tonight? Uh, no, uh, but I am, other, you are? I am otherwise altered. Uh, ah, I, right. I it's, no it's medicinal in my state. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> so medicinal, but not fully legal. No, it, it's or like that, if you yeah. get caught with under oh shit, I don't the metric. Okay, I, I'm not going to do the conversion, but if you can have <laughs> up to three point five ounces, and it's a minor fine. Yeah, like we still use like ounces over here. 
I know we claim to be metric. I know that, that this country particularly likes to, to claim that it's metric. But if you go into a bar, you order a pint, you don't order a litre. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like We, we, we drive miles, not kilometres. Um, and if you're asking about dick measurement, always in inches. So there you go. <laughs> And uh, and kind of celebration for my return back on your show, I uh, bought myself a, a large can. I believe you call these tall boys in your country. Oh. Um, I, I bought myself a tall boy of Brewdog's Mister President. Ooh, perfect! Uh, so yeah, so I'm uh, it themed matches up, um, and it's it's quite strong actually. That I, I didn't realize when I bought it, uh, it's nine point two percent which is quite strong for a beer um so and i'm chasing up with a whiskey because then you know i like my whiskey and if i'm chatting to you about anything i like to have a little whiskey because it makes me feel sophisticated yeah. well here i've got oh, you're gonna hear it great for podcasting but i've got one oh. shot left oh did that sound right there is is like close to orgasm, um, <laughs> as as you can get in an audio format. Because that's a cork coming out of whiskey ball, which means that that wasn't cheap. Uh, that's the rule. If it's a screw cap, cheap as fuck. <laughs> if it's got a cork, someone spent a bit of time in it. Yeah, there's nothing worse than just gonna pour ourselves a whiskey and then you hear the tap, you know, the cap being screwed. You're like, uh, return that, please. <laughs> Yeah, the plastic um, crunch. Yeah, oh god, I was trying to think where I was. Um, not that I'm throwing shade at him because I love him a bit, uh, and he, le- he allowed me to stay at his house. But when I visited Danny, um, Danny Troutson from the the Midnight Horror Show, uh, over in Virginia, I spent a couple of nights at his, um, in my in my whistle stop tour of Virginia, which turns out is full of well, back then particularly, and I think more so now, uh, full of people wearing red hats with white writing on it was slogans that I couldn't read from a distance um, and uh, he had Jim Beam and like in, in Scotland Jim Beam only comes in glass bottles but turns out in Virginia comes in plastic bottles uh, which fucking blew my mind I was like is that like a, like a hip flask size plastic bottle of Jim Beam and he's like hell yeah and I was like I will say no more <laughs> like, <laughs> I will, not, I will not say another word in my country. You'd be fucking shot for that. Um, so, yeah, each to their own. Each to their own. Right, right. I drank a lot. I drank out of a lot of plastic liquor bottles in high school. But ah. but now, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe our friendship was the turning point and marrying into my <laughs> wife's family who... Like her dad always drank really cheap beer, but really expensive liquor. That's um, the way to do it. That's like, <laughs> like that, I, I'm not saying he's from Scotland, but there's there's Celtic blood in him because that's that's the old country. The old country is beer is is purely there to fill up the spaces in between the good liquor. So <laughs> yeah, so. In honor of you and in memory of him, here we go. There's my last shot for until I go. There's a state uh, liquor store about ten minute walk from my house. So, oh right, so you like so beer not state mandated, but liquor state mandated for you. Oh yeah, I mean you can get it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean it's also yeah. not too far from where the beer comes from, but 
Uh, oh, right, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. But, you so, know. but is it like separate? Is it like set? So as in like you could go to, I'm trying to use American terms here, you could go like to a Walgreens, for example, and there would be beer there. But unless they have a liquor license, you couldn't buy liquor there. As far as I'm right? aware, uh, sometimes they will make, I don't know if you want to say watered down, but you can get different, uh, different right, proof. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's like 35 or 40 percent Jim Beam at some grocery stores and whatnot. Got you. Got but you. then got you, got it you, got you. goes over a certain limit. Although here, I'm always talking about Columbus. We have, I think, over 30 beer breweries and <laughs> yeah. uh, a handful of liquor distilleries. So yeah. I don't, th- I think the uh, allowed percentage of beer, and that's part of why BrewDog opened their first uh, American. Makes sense. Yeah, here, yeah. Was I think they raised the limit to 25 or 30% for beer. Yeah. Uh, so That's a no brainer for them. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> some of their stuff gets, some of their stuff gets like almost face paralyzing, um, which I'm not sure if that's a, that's a, you know, that's a conscious decision on their part, but like you don't fuck around with Jackhammer. Like like Jackhammer's not even the strongest beer, but if you have two of them, like you like your legs are fucked. The rest of you is fine. You can hold a conversation fine, but your legs don't don't be planning to go anywhere or do anything that involves kind of coordination. So Oof, yeah. Yeah. Nice nice stuff. But yeah, so there, yeah. I I did I had my little drink with you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know I think it's talking about the conversation, conversating about the conversation, mm. and Francis Ford Coppola and Gene Hackman and 1974 and th- thrillers like this. I think you have to have a little bit of liquor. I should have planned ahead of time. <laughs> um, it's a, it's it's the, the weird thing about this movie and we we do have another one in the in the wings so to speak uh, um but there's the weird thing about this one is how incredibly sobering the whole thing actually is in terms of the subject matter because it is it's your it's basically your privacy so and and how like we all think we have it but we actually don't um, and even back in 74, that was a, you know, a themed talking point. And nowadays, even more. So, like, we're in, a, we're in a point just now. In fact, I think I saw someone post on social media. I'm trying to think. This was, like, maybe two days ago. This was on Twitter as well. Um, urging people to stop filling out those, you know, uh, what's your name? What's your favorite food? Where was the place you went to school? What's your, you know, your best friends? Like all this basically saying this is all you're doing is just giving a ton of private information that a hacker or bot or scammer can then use against you later on when they send you a message on an email that seems a bit more personal. Um, and I'll be honest, it wasn't anything that I'd ever actually overtly considered. Um per se like on that level there are there are other things that you you know are like immensely skeptical of but um i hadn't ever really considered it to that level and then obviously there's an incredible scene in this movie where the technology is so innocuous that um 
where a pen is given to Tackman, he doesn't actually question for one second from the person that he's been given it from that this could actually be something that could be recording him. Um, and that was then. And technology has shifted quite a bit since then. Uh, Reban just now uh, currently selling sunglasses that connect directly to Facebook. <laughs> like why anyone, why anyone would fucking want that is beyond me. So I'm just going to take my glasses off and put them at the side of my bed, and now someone can hack into them and watch me sleep or know exactly where I am uh, when I'm not in my house to go in and steal my possessions. Uh, or was that the the password that I typed in on my keyboard to enter my work laptop? Or was that the PIN number I used to access my account from an ATM? And like, like it's just like me, but it's like, it's a brand new day. And I'm like, yeah, for stealing everyone's information. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they're all at it. There's a, there's a great there's a great story. Uh, I know we need to talk about the movie, but there's a there's a great story. Um, I once got told at a data convention um, that I attended. Uh, my job, not giving anything away for it because I don't want to bore you all. Uh, my job involves data essentially, or like it, I, I will use data as an innocuous sort of catch-all term, right? And uh, I went to one of these conferences. And they were talking about different uses of it and different applications. And the guy had talked about a story that he'd read uh, when he was in the States about, um, it was on a, I want to say it was in, a, uh, this is when I get all wrong. Uh, I want to say it was in Chicago, but I may be wrong. But at the airport in Chicago, uh, there is a pizza hut. And the pizza hut is one of those um, large, displays that you can order all your food so you don't actually physically have to speak to anyone um which the introvert in me loves that but i'm also fully aware that it's done away with someone's job and i want everyone to have a job so it's like a catch-22 but uh, this person went up and the screen at first had like a very pleasant sorry it was pictures and descriptions and all the rest and it malfunctioned when they were this was a woman uh malfunctioned when they were inputting stuff and they got the code behind the pictures that come up on the screen and what they read was chilling so what it said was it was actually profiling you from the point that you went there so it was checking to see if you were male or female the reason it was doing that is if you were male it was going to push fatty foods on you and if you were female it was going to push more health based foods um it looked at approximating your age and then the 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 most probably the most disturbing thing out of everything uh it actually looked to see if you were smiling or not so if you're actually happy um, and this was all data collated in there which would then anticipate what it could sell you or upsell you in your Pizza Hut meal. Um, and the fact and that we're going back years now, the fact that that technology exists is fucking terrifying, Dern. Um, and it makes you wonder, like, when you send a Snapchat, uh, how much of that's been read about where you are, um, what, you know, what sort of mood you're in, what filters you're using, what's in the background, um, what's in the, what's in the box? Um, you know what I mean? It's, there's, there's a lot of this stuff being calculated. And back in 74, it's, it's interesting to see someone like Coppola, who, and I, we've, got, we've got to stress this, right, in terms of its placement, right? Francis Ford Coppola, 74, right? So he's, he's, he's at this point being kind of, 
groomed, so to speak, in terms of the, the greater understanding of cinema. He's one of the, like, essentially the new breed of Hollywood, they call them, beside him and uh, people like um, William Friedkin. These were the guys that were going to take things to the next level they were going to push things to you know the next the next realm of filmmaking from all the the old guard we're going to get the new guard and essentially the conversation is the movie that he makes in between godfather and godfather part two but he, you know he does this one the same year as godfather part two um and he does it kind of on the fly this is a quick movie for him to churn out uh, but would you know like when we look back over these movies people don't always jump to the conversation but this one won the palm door um it was nominated for oscars and did very very well and like you mentioned in your intro stars gene hackman who'd just done the french connection with william friedkin um which was a huge fucking movie so it's so interesting to to think of coppola being this director who at one time was seen as being you know the future of Hollywood, working with arguably one of the greatest actors of all time during his, once again, arguably his, his like strongest time in cinema, his murderer's row of films. Um, but because it's not like the mob and because it's not like full of like uber violence or Vietnam or anything like that, this one's kind of been lost to the ether as a kind of slow burn thriller with not a lot of action um but this is more terrifying to me than than walking watching like apocalypse now <laughs> like because i am never going to be in the army i'm never going to be stationed somewhere else or have to deal with the trauma of that but uh i use devices every day that didn't exist then that are more likely to do what the devices in this movie do all the fucking time without thinking about it and that's kind of terrifying yeah i'm i'm reminded of it i'm I probably haven't watched this since around when you were telling Bo to watch it. Oh yeah, yeah. But it, it was. Wonderful. Had you seen it before that? I had well, once or twice. It was on. It comes yeah. up on Turner Classic Movies. I don't know if you get that channel or that. Network. We don't over here. I'm, I'm aware of it. Yeah, I'm aware of TNT. Like TNT would have been something else over here. So it would have been uh, given through a different channel. It's how I used to watch WCW back in the day. Okay, well, TNT and Turner Classic are separate, but uh, same family, same same original yeah. owner. So Turner Classic yes. Movies is pretty much all movies. Sometimes they play shorts or old things from the 50s, but uh, uh, you, you recently covered Mank. Yes. Which, on which, which is, is that uh, Teapots or is that Opera Omnia? That's it. That was Opera Omnia. So that was our okay. final, our final movie in the Fincher catalog. His grandson, I think, or his nephew, is one of the movie hosts on there. And ah. So, sometime, uh, his name's Ben Mankiewicz. And, um, but anyway, they, they'll they do things. They always do November, and they always do all the old and new scary movies from the silent Phantom of the Opera up to, I mean, now it's, you know, classic movies from the 80s and things like that so oh we're so old then we're so old <laughs> you know when they were playing the thing and then night of the lepus and then dracula mm. and just whatever so it, it would pop up on here 
I think around the same time that they did something like Parallax View or The Third Man or um, some other thriller that I'm totally, I know those aren't all thrillers, <laughs> you know, that I'm totally spacing on right now. Yeah, yeah. But they have good. So it's, it's, but that's cool. That's cool that you would get the opportunity to see a movie like this there, if you know what I mean. So like that's the idea that that sort of movie would be playing like on, on a service that people would have access to, as opposed to being buried somewhere. Um, and you know, like we, we live in a, an age just now where movies are constantly being rediscovered um, by people that are too lazy to seek them out that's like every time i see like you know one of these film website things coming back to you know we recently found or we recently rediscovered no 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 no. the movie's been there and it's been available like a rediscovery is something like the three the three hour black and white cut of george a romero's martin which has recently been discovered buried in a university that's a rediscovery right but when you're saying, you know, we, we recently discovered a movie like The Faculty, for example, it's been available. You know, like, it's been out there for a while. What you're trying to say is you watched it for the first time in a while and you really liked it. <laughs> you didn't rediscover it. You know what I mean? You, like, it's, it's, it's terminology that drives me up the wall. But the conversation is one of those ones. I, I would love to be able to sit down and watch this with my wife, for example. But she just has a memoriam on, like... <laughs> like the age of certain movies that she'll just not entertain at all. And anything kind of pre-1980, she just won't do it. And I'm like, it's the best, like you're the 70s is arguably the best decade for cinema ever. And she's like, ah, I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, cool, fine, fine. So I, I sit and watch these movies myself um, in a darkened room usually with the aforementioned whiskey. And uh, I, I get myself into the, the feel and the vibe. Simpler time, longer movies, more story and more character driven. But guess what? That equals a better movie. So Don't know much what tension it is. in like, this movie. So much tension for a movie that really doesn't, like, it doesn't really give you any of the beats and also doesn't really show you anything. Like, the, the death in this movie um, that's revealed towards the end uh, which to be honest all those pieces like really come together in the last what 25 minutes uh, but the, the the death of the Duval character is how he imagines the death of the Duval character not how he actually physically sees it with his own eyes so he pieces it together from a conversation that he hears using a wiretap uh, and then he fills in the blanks there so you don't that's the, the, the kind of the, it might be the thing that kind of throws people off about this movie, but you don't actually the terror that you get from this movie, the tension you get from this movie, is because you are Gene Hackman in this movie, and you're his paranoia all the way through it, and oh, you are with a character who's so guarded and so. Uh, so restrictive of what he does and who he interacts with and how he operates that by the time he realizes that he's been played um arguably for the second time because uh, there's a, a story and we'll get to it in the review there's a story about how he fled new york before because of something similar that he gets played again the same way and you could argue that maybe the events of the new york make him more guarded so he has 
he's more kind of set in his ways on how he operates, but he's still at the end of it, ends up in exactly the same place as he did before. And he either lives in the, the misery of not knowing how he's been compromised or he moves again. Um, but like, if you're moving twice because you've been compromised twice, there's uh, a chance it's going to happen the third time. So are you ever really safe? And I, I, I kind of, I kind of love that. Also, what's happening to him is not the worst thing in the world at the end of this movie. It's what he's doing to other people. So he's tasting his own medicine, but you see the effect it has on his life compared to the effects it's had on others. So, um, it's, it's immensely fascinating. I suppose at this point, you, I suppose you'll just want to talk about the movie now, Darren. <laughs> oh no. I mean, th- th- we should probably talk about it more than we did, uh, return of the living dead. If you, if you I can't even remember. I can't even remember. Did we do that on your show? I think we called the episode We Almost Talk About Return of the Living Dead. And we just talked about yeah, other that, shit for about three hours. That was smoke on that episode. Oh, yes. You can't get anything that's done smoke on the episode. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why. So, like, so, yeah, so the conversation, right, uh, essentially, um, it revolves around Gene Hackman, who's a, a character called Harry Cole, and he is private investigator slash snoop um and he we joined them at the the start with this incredibly difficult surveillance mission where they're trying to capture audio in this open area at lunchtime surrounded by people with a man and a woman who are walking around this courtyard um in a way where they feel that they'll not be able to be surveilled recorded etc etc you know, that was and Harrison he's... Ford's screen test. Really? If you've dived, dived, div, dove, dove, dove. I don't know if you dove yes. into the special features any of the times you popped it out. But yeah, uh, Harrison Ford originally tested for that male character. Ah. And there's there's a lot of old zoetrope pictures or whatever Cop- Coppola's company is called, Little Things little snippets yeah. and um his screen test was doing that scene with uh what's her name cindy williams mm-hmm. who does play uh ann in that That's part. Right, yeah, yeah. but yeah harrison they did the whole around the thing uh it's about six and a half minute long scene and uh oh, wow coppola was experimenting with a stationary camera on that yeah, and uh, Cindy Williams originally uh, screen tested for the part later played by Terry Gar. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people, I think there's a lot of people out there that just assume that Harrison Ford, like, didn't do anything at all until Star Wars. <laughs> there's just a misconception that he hadn't already worked with. He hadn't just bounced from working with Francis Ford Coppola to George Lucas, arguably two of the biggest directors of the 70s. Uh, you know, I mean, he was doing fine, is what we're saying. Um, he's doing okay. He's got a great part. He's brilliant in this. Like, everyone's brilliant in this. But like, essentially... Hackman's character is trying to record this audio. He's been approached because he can get things done. Uh, and he's got this elaborate way of doing it. And for the first maybe third of this movie, um Harry is being very, very, very cautious, but he's trying to 
sort the audio. And this is where comparisons we mentioned before to things like blow up or blow out um, come into play because there's more detail gleaned as he does more work on the audio in this one. So to begin with, there's there's whole sections that aren't there, but so you get one view of what the conversation might be ergo the name uh and then he pieces more together uses more of his own kind of handmade techniques and whatnot to piece more until he gets a, an audio file that he can return to his employer who's purely known as the director um as played by um, he doesn't come into much later on in this movie robert duval and he blink and you will miss it role robert duval was huge in the 70s so like for him to take this role and he has very little dialogue and very little presence um, in the movie. It's kind of like it's kind of incredible. What I think on one level it shows uh, Coppola's clout at this point, kind of post the Godfather. Uh, but also, I think on some level maybe shows a little bit of this movie wasn't made for the most money and was kind of put together kind of relatively quick. I mean, this is a movie that costs about one and a half million. Um, so it was kind of fun. So like, there's like a huge speaking performance by Robert Duvall, probably because they couldn't afford them. Um, but yeah, so you've got that. So that's the first kind of third of the movie is that level. In the background, Harry Cole himself is incredibly paranoid. This is a guy who is regimented to the degree. His colleagues know like absolutely nothing about him. He has a girlfriend that also knows pretty much nothing about him he lives in an apartment which is sparse doesn't appear to have anything doesn't really like to answer the phone doesn't give out his details to anyone is super paranoid that his landlady left a birthday bottle of booze uh, and this is where me and harry call switch like completely into polar opposites <laughs> someone leaves me a free bottle of booze in my house i don't care how they got in i am thankful for it uh, but like the fact that she knew it was his birthday perturbs him. The fact that she had an extra key perturbs him. Um, so he's a guy who's very, very guarded and very shielded. Shielded. You get some explanation later on. As the movie moves into the second kind of act, the second third, it's mostly kind of giving you a bit more of the details that you don't know about Harry in the background, plus his interactions with. Uh, Martin, played by Harrison Ford, who works for the director, who's kind of pressurising them and just give me the footage and give me the recordings and all the rest. We'll give you the money. You don't need to meet the employer. You know, just give it to me and everything will be fine. Um, and we get a bit of his backstory and him, his interactions with the the Bernie character, who is, like, is so weaselly in this movie. He thinks he's getting the upper hand. I love this because he thinks he gets the upper hand with the the pen and the old pocket. Um, but what he doesn't understand is that, you know, yeah, that's a cool trick. And, you know, it reminds Harry to be a bit more guarded. But there's a an infamous story about Harry's background in New York uh, that he did some work for the district, uh, a district attorney. I don't know. You guys have weird names for things. Uh, so yeah. for the DA. DA. And it involved, uh, re involved recording conversations between the then president and his accountant, which no one could have recorded and no one knows how he does it, how he did it. But the end result was the accountant and his family were murdered after it. So it, you're kind of given this idea of, well, that's why Harry left 
New York to start up his own business and whatnot. So you get a bit of this background information. Then the last third of this movie is basically he's pieced together the audio, he's met the director. Coppola is so smart in this one because uh, Cindy Williams, who plays Anne, we never find out the relationship to the director, to Duval at all. It's assumed that it's potentially his wife, but there seems to be quite an age difference there, so it could be his daughter. Um, you, you, they never, ex, you know, never expressly tell you, and, and Coppola himself wanted that ambiguity as to what the relationship was. But ultimately, this movie finishes with Harry being used the same way he was used in New York, and it's not the way you think. The way the movie's pot, uh, kind of kind of set out the 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 hypothesis of this one is that the director is going to murder either his wife or the man that's stooping his wife um and it turns out it's actually all an elaborate plan most likely set up by martin to lure the director into doing something silly so they can take him out and then make it look like an accident very very similar to blowout and once again let blow up um and uh Harry's the only witness because he has the audio and there's nothing really he can do about it. Oh, and yeah, by the way, in case he does, the end of this movie ends with one of the most horrifically traumatising scenes in, in cinema history about pure fucking paranoia. There are absolutely no way someone like John Carpenter, when directing the thing, did not watch the conversation. Um, because the, the kind of subtle nuance of... You know, like, I'm just going to check here. I'm going to check. I'm going to use all my tools. Oh, they recorded me, but I can't find the bug. Look at my apartment now, and all I've got left is my saxophone. It's kind of haunting. So um, that covers the, the, the kind of synopsis of it. Uh, but I want to get into the guts of this one, then, because this one's all about uh, surveillance. And you could step this out one step further, certainly in the, the other movie that we've watched. But... Um, I'm trying to work at the chronology here. This is before Watergate, isn't it? This is really close to Watergate. I think it came out in theaters a couple months before Nixon resigned, or a couple months I'm before not a Watergate. Crook. Really, really not a broke. Crook. Yes, right, I'm gonna go see the conversation. <laughs> Can all of this? You've now got this. You've now got this idea in my head that like Nixon like finally came clean as press and promotion for the conversation. Conversation, <laughs> my new movie, the conversation. Um, you want to talk about tapes? Well, it's it's weird not to look at it from that way because uh, blow up that we mentioned earlier on. Uh, blow up is about. Pictures. The photographer that takes a photo that you know he needs to magnify and check. And there's something in that photograph that's going to give him information to solve the mystery. Um, and we don't do that with any level of audio media until Watergate. And then it's you know like all of a sudden the tapes are really important. And you know there's countless movies of people delving into recordings of other people. Um, which comes right off the back of that. So it kind of makes me wonder if it was one of those things, like when Scream first came out, people just didn't think the phone was a scary thing at all. And then it did become a scary thing. If people just thought that having your voice recorded or not being aware that you were being recorded was just a blasey sort of very neutral thing. And then all of a sudden after Watergate, everyone was like, oh, fuck, they're listening to us. 
We're all fucked. We're all fucked. What did you say yesterday? I don't remember. And, yeah, and there know. are some more references, I think, to Nick. There, they somebody on the news is talking about Nixon avoiding the State of the Union address. Yeah. In one of the scenes, and then Bernie, when he's doing his drunken brag thing about you know I'm I'm the best on the West Coast or the East Coast. Yes. Uh, all that stuff. He said that about twelve years ago, which would would be uh-huh. you know depending on when they shot the film, somewhere around the 1960 presidential election, I would think. Yes. And that he's like, I follow, I don't want to tell you what party, but I followed a guy around everywhere he was. I recorded it. And, you know, he, he lost. And yep. I, uh, for those who don't know, that was Richard Nixon who lost in that election. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. If at don't succeed, like, just bolster things up, change the system and crush your enemies like bugs. Um, yeah, that's the Nixon story uh, in a nutshell. Because uh, there's that there's that infamous story about them like, they, they, they did not him and JFK re- did a debate against each other and yeah, depending on how... Televised debates, yeah. Yeah, depending on how you consumed it, um you had a different opinion. So if you listen to it, uh, like i.e. the radio or whatever, um, Nixon come off better. But if you watched it on TV, uh, he was apparently sweating a lot <laughs> and looking generally shifty, which people don't want in their politicians. Uh, and the court of public opinion declared that he lost from a visual standpoint. Um, and it's very important because like, we're obviously in a, an audio medium, but... Like even nowadays, people are now doing podcasts and the video. I'm, I'm contemplating myself, you know, and a video kind of medium to present that. And one of the things they teach politicians nowadays is how you have to be incredibly savvy in front of the camera. Like people don't really take in absolutely everything you say, but your body language they do. So if you're very, it's one of the reasons that like people are like Trump's trustworthy. Because he, like, if you look at him, he keeps giving you the okay symbol, regardless what he says. His hand is constantly okay. It's okay, okay. And it, that drumming of that constantly is positive kind of affirmation that what he's saying is correct without actual listening. If you listen to what he's saying, he's talking gibberish. It's all bollocks. It's all nonsense. It contradicts what he said two minutes before. But the body language, the confidence in the body language and the way he's presenting that is in such a manner that when you finish watching it, you feel positive about the messaging. And um in this in this particular thing, because we're working with the audio format, like the what's kind of clever about it is using that as a technique, is Harry is piecing together what he thinks has happened from the, the audio that he's listened to. So when we first start hearing the the sim bites, um Anne's communicating with the the guy that she's with, and it's very much a. It looks like they're having an affair. Everything's set up that way. So when he conjures in his head what that conversation looks like, it's kind of loving. There's there's something about it. there's a, not necessarily an intimacy, but there's something uh, close about them. But by the time he gets the entire audio at the end, and he starts to piece together what actually is happening, when he replays those scenes again the body language between the two people is completely different. Um, and it's the difference between hearing like audio recording of someone and a video. 
Like, I think a lot of people, when we went into lockdown, thought that when they were on a Zoom call, people wouldn't realise if they were jerking it. And it turns out there's plenty of footage out there online of people unwittingly, and I've done quotation marks, like you couldn't see there because this is an audio format, uh, just getting down and dirty with her penis. And um, that's because he didn't realise that technology's moved on now and it isn't just a conference call. It's a video conference call, which means video, which means you need to have your dick in your pants or at least below the camera and your hands on the table. Uh, so, yeah, I, there's, there's an aspect about that that's really quite clever, but I, I think prescient as well because the, like, if you're saying that's in or around the time that Nixon finally, you know, comes clean and, uh, you know, resigns and whatnot. This is, oh, it's a scandal that is a blight on America. Still to this day, it's still like, there's like things like over here, we we have a, a particular political scandal just now called Partygate. Is that you where all, I mean? all the references the, to cakes has been coming? I, I can't keep yeah. up. If cakes that, I figured beer. it was, I figured it was associated, but. Yeah, I, it's, it's cakes and beer mostly but the fact that gate is at the end of it like speaks to the level of the pop culture nature the reason that gate is in watergate is because that's the name of the hotel so the fact that like anyone would be like oh this is like pizza gate this is party gate when that makes zero fucking sense because none of that like it just becomes part of the scandal part of the way that people disseminate information and also at the same time impart information to other people it's really easy to call a scandal a gate uh, even though that gate means nothing like it really really doesn't in fact if anything like a gate as in what a gate actually is the analogy of like a scandal getting out a gate doesn't make sense uh at all it's a poor choice of words um so, but like the fact that that, you know, is in the background, people are fully aware of it, it's dominating the media. And then you get this film that comes out specifically aimed at people recording other people's audio conversations against their will or knowledge. It's kind of genius. And once again, it makes me think like Francis Ford Coppola for, he's got a scatty career. And let's be honest, he hasn't really made anything worth note since Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, there was a time period there. Incredibly dangerous director to the establishment. You'll have to watch Apocalypse now to understand that. Um, but you're watching things like the, the conversation, you're watching things like The Godfather. Uh, the mob is play, kind of portrayed any romantic version, yes, but also in a version that I imagine the mob weren't happy about at the time. Nowadays, yeah. But back then, probably not. So ballsy fucking director to go out there and do a movie like this um but i think it has clout because this is one of these things where there are stakes isn't there all the way through this movie you're not aware of the stakes until right at the very end when you're first introduced this is just an audio recording of a conversation where you think women's having an affair and so you're like yeah the husband should know that god damn it and um as the further you go down at that point you start to realise that things aren't as easy as you think and actually privacy is something that we should all be entitled to um, it's kind of clever how it plays out and uh, speaking of keeping your uh, an idea or keeping what's in frame in mind um, we have to talk about how pretty much every shot starts out with something that could be a beautiful photograph 
on framed yep. on the wall cinematography by Bill Butler. Who, oh, dude, this I movie mean, is so beautiful. <laughs> that and uh, this pretty much single piano music by uh, what's his name, David Shire. Yeah, the score in this one's kind of great, and because there's a, a kind of combination between not only just like this kind of, it's almost, and it works with the saxophone later on. There's a kind of almost conspiratorial piano hook in here which i kind of piano is great for it's a very versatile instrument it is the instrument of spy movies like i know some people will know it's big band listen to james bond i'm like ah it's not really like when i think about like a private investigator i think about film noir and if i think of an instrument that best sums up film noir it's the piano so the fact to kind of come back to that but then you add this kind of bluesy jazzy saxophone um that you know uh we have our main character harry you know plays along with i, I love that as well like he's he's not actually he's playing along with what other people are playing he's not composing his own music because he's not that guy he's not a creative in that manner he's you know he, he's recreating the sounds that someone else has made as opposed to creating his own sounds uh, which is just another little level of that's very clever, Francis Ford Coppola. You should do this for a living, <laughs> uh, this writing, directing thing. Maybe you'll get an Oscar one day. Um, you know, it kind of all ties into that. But it's got the kind of it's got the classic, suspenseful, whimsical, uh, and quizzical sort of piano score. And like you mentioned, cinematography, like. I can't, I can't stress, 70s movies can look one of three ways. They can look kind of soft focus, which is the tool that De Palma mostly used in the 70s. They can look very gritty, grainy, and kind of ugly. I'm thinking things like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, something like Miss 45, you know, like all the exploitation stuff. Or you get this, which is... Yeah, this is this is the as good as cinematography we'll get in this decade. And you can look at movies, the classic movies, like, you know, things like The Exorcist, The French Connection that we mentioned before, both freaking or looking at like this particular movie or the Godfather where it's there's a I hate to use the word, but it's handsome looking. Well, you see, you could take a single shot of it, almost anything in this movie, and it's frame worthy. You could put it on your wall and people would be people wouldn't look at it and go, that's a ugly picture he's got on his wall they, they were looking and say that's it's a nice bit of cinematography or a nice bit of photography um, and this like he never had an issue with that like Coppola seemed to just have like an endless supply of incredibly talented people willing to work with him and I think that kind of that bolsters things for him when you have a movie that is Essentially, it's not the most kinetic feeling movie. It doesn't have a lot of busyness about it. It's mostly shots where a camera's slowly moving to the next like level. Um, when you have movies that are doing that sort of thing, like on some level, photography is maybe not necessarily at the forefront of what you're thinking about because it's not active. It's not like moving all the time. But then you watch this and you can instantly tell the difference between a great cinematographer and a bad cinematographer. This particular one here, Bill Butler, incredible career. Like, this guy's, like, laundry list of things he worked on was, like, 
fucking savage. I mean, like, it, like absolutely incredible. Uh, he worked on, you may have heard of a little movie called Jaws. Uh, you know what I mean? He may have, I don't know, he may have helped out on that one. One of my favourite things about, like, his, his filmography at all, because he, he, like, worked a lot on, like, Rocky and stuff like that, and you can go back and check it out, and he's doing what he's doing over there, and it's fine. But one of those things that makes me smile to levels that I should not smile in terms of, a, a, like, a, he did the cinematography for Anaconda. Oh, shit, did he? Oh, yeah, yeah. 97, Anaconda. You know what I'm calling that? Slumming it. So I like this idea that even, even at that point, uh, he's like, ah, fuck it. Um, yeah, he, he did Frailty as well. And Frailty is a movie that uh, its cinematography is woefully overlooked because it's like, it's incredible because it uses, it's a gritty noir story. It's a kind of whimsical out on the prairie story. It's definitely a full-on fucking horror movie. And he captures all that. So like an incredible incredible cinematographer who just happened to be flexing his muscles uh, about the same time as you know, uh, you, you got a chance to sit down and do, I don't know if he ever actually what with, with Coppola again I think this might be his uh, I'm now actually actively reading through his his, uh, his filmography and uh, oh shit he did uh, Grease uh, and at that point I need to get off the internet <laughs> Not doing that anymore. Not doing it anymore. So it's, it's a beautiful looking movie, but I think, but it's slow. Camera work is slow and it aids it, I think, because you can't be like super. F- there's a there's a, a great film critic in the UK called Mark Kermode, who I love, um, and he's a big horror fan, but he's like overtly critical of horror movies, and he loves it. Exorcist is his favourite movie, and uh, Mark Kermode says. Um, about certain things that when you're in a medium which is not an action medium it's very difficult to portray as an action medium so the example would be if you worked let's say you were in a newspaper right and that's the movie the movie is got to get these headlines out and all the rest very very difficult to make those shots really actiony and kind of punchy because it's mostly people typing shit and then publishing it you know, what I mean, that's 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 your that's your if you're a like a one man army, like a like an army and commando, very easy to make that an action movie because he's got guns, he's taking on bad guys and all the rest. The best movies are the ones that steer into the the mundane nature of the subject, but find interesting ways to propel the story at a pace or give it a vibrancy that it doesn't have, and most of that. And this movie comes through the flashbacks. It's, you know, it's him sitting trying to piece together audio, but we're flashing back to busy people walking around the square, people having these conversations, music in the background. And that's the busyness. What he's doing is ass on chair, very much like me and Dern right now, uh, twiddling my knobs. (laughs) That's not an exciting, you know, it's not an exciting movie, but when you fill it with other things, uh, it becomes a very exciting movie. It's like when you watch Spotlight for the first time, um, and you sit and, you, and you're like, "Oh, right, it's a story about uh, like the Spotlight article on, you know, priests abusing people in Boston." Um, but they work at a newspaper. I wonder how they're going to be. That movie's like about two hours long, and it fucking flies in. And the reason it flies in is because there's always something happening. 
you very rarely see someone sit down typing, a, the, you know, actually typing the article out. It's all the stuff that happens in the background. Coppola understands that. Like, the medium that he's working in is one that someone would have to sit on their ass to fucking twist knobs and fix. But the conspiracy behind it is the thing that's more kinetic, so you spend more time doing the conspiracy behind it than you necessarily do the work to get to the end recording that goes out. It's a smart move. It's all about the conversation. And, yeah, it's yes. sort of the, the isolation and the privacy slash la- lack of privacy but you know like that that's why i why i think irony the, yeah it's the irony it's the irony of a guy who is so guarded about his his privacy but works in the medium where he knows how easy it is to break the sanctity of that privacy and that's the way he is I find that hugely fascinating. It's like that way where you hear people that work in, like I worked, my first job, I don't know if I've ever recorded and spoke about this before, so this may be an exclusive for you. My very first job when I was 16, I worked uh, as an apprentice at Butchers. Um, They have that in America, don't they? They have the, the term Butchers. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Just making sure. I didn't know if you had like some... Like meat cleaver, <laughs> or like I don't know, because you guys go very literal with the description of things. Animal chopper um, man. Yeah, an animal chopper dude. Um, so yeah, I worked in a, in a butcher's, and I worked there for just under a year. And within about a month, I realised it was not the job for me. So I moved on to doing more of the sales side in the in the shop, and less of the actual cleaving of meat. But what was interesting about it is my. My eating of meat, my intake of that, I didn't go vegan or, or like vegetarian or anything, but I know there it was a huge drop off because I was surrounded by it all the time. Just didn't interest me. So the idea that in this movie, you've got a guy who's out there actively capturing audio, knows all the tricks, the secrets of where it is, knows how much detail can be pulled by a private investigator from letters or like details that could be found films i don't know from banks like any of that sort of shit as has it like under a lid so much so that you know like any indiscretion where someone knows a detail sends a wave of paranoia up on well the fact that his job for a living is to do that's that's the cause and effect he is so aware of what he can do and the abilities that are out there for technology to be used about people in 74 that he now lives this kind of life and you hear these stories like nowadays we hear stories of you know people that go and apply for a job and they go and they have a great interview and they've passed everything great references and then someone googles her name and finds a twitter account and they don't get that job anymore um and it's this idea of people are unaware of the history of the deeds that they do. And back in 74, relatively easy to, to live a life where you, know, you may have an awkward conversation, a spat with someone, a fist fight outside a bar. A year later, no one fucking knows that. You move to the adjacent town and you're fine. And this world that we live in in 2022, like employers are doing their due diligence by just Google searching your name and at a touch of a button, they can find out everything about you and it's everywhere and you're fucked 
and you shouldn't have done that when you were 16. You should not have shat in a bag when you were 16, lit on fire and put your neighbour's porch. Um, <laughs> you know, that will stop you making junior assistant at the bank. I don't know, I'm making up shit. But it's, it's that level. And that's the irony of this. The irony of this is that the very tools that Hackman is so convinced that he's on the cutting edge of, he's not because they're used against him in a, at the end of this movie in a way that he could never fathom. He can't, he can't find the device they use at all. So they are beyond him. The people he's dealing with had that technology, they had the technology all along. So you've got to think about it. That's the, that's the, 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 the fucking stinger at the end of this movie. The people that he is working for could have done this themselves. Oh, yeah. And they didn't. He used them as the fall guy. And then as intimidation, like they finally show their cards at the end. And it fucking terrifies him to the point that he strips everything. He lifts floorboards, everything. Like he's sitting in his shell which was an apartment which, let's be honest, was pretty much a shell anyway, and all he has is the one thing which, to be honest, if you're a conspiracy theorist like myself, Dern, where do you think it was? Most likely in the saxophone, because it's the only thing he hasn't destroyed. It's the most prized possession. That's where I'd put a bug. He never takes it apart and never will. And um, something kind of maliciously genius about the end of that movie, in a way where you see him fucking but he's a broken man like Bane might have well have just come in and broke his back and left him in a dark room oh yes I'm molded by the dark Mr. <laughs> you know what I mean like that's basically what they do to him uh, but the fact he won't destroy his saxophone is his weakness because that's where the well, to me that's where the bug is um, but yeah it's, it's like and so much so much cleverness so much smartness so much irony so much like conspiracy all wrapped up in one movie but first and foremost it's a fucking great thriller the story itself if you removed all that tension out this would still be a good page turner you know what i mean you would still be like oh i want to know what this why, why did they have to film this I, 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 I need to know i need to know that's the that's the genius of the conversation it works on but you can go deep into this one for sure and love it for that. But if you just want to approach this as a superficial, I wonder what's happening sort of movie, you will still come out this thinking it's a great fucking movie. Oh, easily. There, there's stuff there for everyone. And we didn't even get into the surveillance state and all that other stuff. And his, <laughs> his, um, his devout Catholicism, which is built well, on this is the, paranoia oh, and always being watched and not wanting to hear people say Jesus Christ around you and going Does to confession. Does not want blasphemy. <laughs> One of the hardest things to watch for that character, knowing all that, is when he has to like basically break his statue of the Virgin Mary to see if there's a bug in it. Like, it can't possibly. Yeah, like, who would, who would do that? But he breaks it anyway and it isn't in there, so it's all for naught, but it doesn't break his saxophone. And you're like, dude... <laughs> come on play the game um but yeah like there's it's all wrapped up like harry calls he inc- there's a there's a difference in how you write characters decade on decade and i know a lot of people out there will listen to this and go oh you're old man mcleish you're talking about the good old days and uh, the 70s are a decade that existed before i was born i was born in 81 so that you know they, they they had finished 
and a year on top of that before I was born. But like I look back at cinema then and I don't ping for it necessarily, but I appreciate what they, they could do at the time. Audiences were more patient. People were more forgiving. But like screenwriters and directors were more confident, I would say, in their ability to right, I'm going to do a movie, it's going to be two hours long, and, you know, it isn't going to really be the most action-based movie, but it's going to be a character study, it's going to be a character piece on a theme. And Harry Cole, for as little as we know about him as a character, don't know how old he is, we know that he you know, lived in New York, but we don't know if he's from New York, we, don't, we know so little about him. By the end of this movie, we know so much about him without necessarily knowing anything about him. And that's kind of genius. You can you can fully picture that character without the details that we generally need to picture a character. Uh, Coppola manages to create this three-dimensional image of someone with scant detail at all. Um, and that's a craft. That is a, that is a genuine craft that we are missing in cinema nowadays that few directors manage to create without like exposition dumps the closest you get to an exposition dump in this movie is a conversation with bernie talking about well we don't know how you put the bug on the boat well i know it's just three people that died and you moved town afterwards that's it that's as much as you know about harry you know that he plays saxophone alone he's very guarded um, as far as he's concerned, he's completely a businessman, which on some level upsets Duval when he's like that. Go and count the money somewhere else. Don't count it in front of me. You, you just shattered my life, but don't count it in front of me. Uh, which makes me wonder why you would lay the money out like that if you didn't want to count it in front of you. Right. Bad play, Duval. Uh, but he's like, don't you know? Don't do that. I don't, I don't want to see this. But like that's that, like. He's a bit like he says himself, when I turn the tapes over, that's it. Except in this case, because when he turns the tapes over and he's told not to go further, he goes further. And what he overhears is something he shouldn't. And as a result of that, he ends up where he, he ends up. Um, it's kind of amazing. It, it really is. I, like, I can't stress this enough. I think if anyone, sit, if anyone was sitting down and doing a top 10 list of thrillers ever made, and the conversation wasn't in your top 10, your list is wrong. <laughs> like, genuinely, you've either never seen this movie or you don't appreciate how ahead of its time it actually fucking is. Very prescient of its time, but a scary reminder that almost 50 years on, I mean, it'll be 50 years old in two years' time, which is fucking nuts. But 50 years on, it's, it's more pertinent now than it ever was. Nuts. Like, see if someone tomorrow said, I want to remake, I want to make a movie called The Conversation. Going to do this remake, it's going to be the, the conversation. Like, I'd be like, it's so blasé now that no one would be, no one would be scared of it, no one would be interested in it because everyone now just fully accepts that when I tick a box or I greet something on a page or on an app, they're tracking me. And that's where we are now. It's the old joke, you know, oh, you're worried about the wiretap. Hey, wiretap, <laughs> look up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, before we started this recording, I asked Siri to turn on my Blu-ray lights, which is where I'd like, I've got strip lighting all along the Blu-ray shelf that 
my microphone hangs off to record. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was like, yeah, no problem. And I'm sure someone somewhere is like that. Ah, he's going on the computer again. The question is, is it to record or to wank? Um, <laughs> and I won't tell you, Siri. I will never tell you. You have to guess it yourself with your non-camera fucking recording device. Um, I hope it's not on camera. Otherwise, there's a lot of footage of me doing things I shouldn't be doing online. I see you have been on for over an hour. It might not be wanking. <laughs> I love that. You're dehydrated here. Go and get a bottle of water. Uh, one of the two. One of the two. Uh, it's, it's like the conversation to me is like, it's when people talk about how great cinema is, like this to me is like as close to pure cinema as you get. It's like a different level. You talk about movie making, you know, movie craft, cinema in general, but when you're talking about pure cinema, that's the conversation. It's a, it's, it's a flawless fucking movie. Like one of those ones where it's like, and it, like if, you want, if you want to talk about masterpiece, the conversation is a masterpiece because there ain't one facet about it, one iota about it where I'm like that, ah, it's a bad casting choice, ah, that, that doesn't make sense. Everything ties up at the end in the most deliciously horrible way. Um, it doesn't give you answers, Percy, but it doesn't have to because that's part of its charm. And that's what's hoping on. So it's yeah, it's different completely different level. Like if you're if you're putting this show with June twenty twenty side by side, there is a distinct difference between Bubble Boy and the conversation. And it's more it's more than just five hundred dollar. You know what I mean? Perfect. I thought you'd like that. Perfect. I thought you'd like that. Perfect ending to that, I think unless we have more to say. Uh, not not in this one, but we, we did watch another movie. We we did watch another movie. Uh, so let's say, I don't know, what, do you feel like being on a two-ish hour episode or two one-hour-ish episodes? It's your show, your, your show, buddy. If you want to take a month off and release this as a second episode and just be like, you know what, Darren has earned this then let's make it a second episode. But if you're thinking to yourself, you know what? This is one of those little treats. Those treats that you have, like a cheat day. Hashtag cheat day. I've seen The Rock's cheat day. I know what he does. This could be your stack of pancakes that you have like at like 10 o'clock at night for some reason, The Rock. Um, <laughs> if this is your cheat day, shove this one in there. We can talk about this one as well. well let's say, how about we will say goodbye for this episode. I like it. Oh, Darren. You know what Darren just said to you listeners? She's like that. I've earned this. And I agree he has. He has. So like, give him some peace. Tune in next time for Duncan and Darren are the enemy of the state. He did what we all must learn to do. You. And you. And you. And you. And cover. I'll be right back.